we finished up Revelation, we did a series in Advent, and in the new year, uh, I'm going to be majoring on the minors, and that'll be uh, beginning in February, but between now and then, I want to give some focus to, to our mission. Our mission is leading people to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus, basically a restatement of Jesus' command to his disciples, make disciples of all nations. Disciple being uh, someone who is a lifelong learner of Jesus, and, and that's what we do, that's what we are, but that's what we aspire to produce among us. So this morning, I'm launching a, a brief series in the marks of discipleship. What, is, what does a disciple of Jesus look like? Uh, this morning, I want to provide the foundation for that, and we'll find that in Philippians chapter 3, just kind of diving into the middle of uh, one of Paul's epistles, <clears throat> uh, Philippians chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 8 through 16. So if you want to join me in reading in your own Bible, there's also Bibles in the racks in front of you. You can help yourself to one of those. All right, Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 8. And it's kind of a, a middle of a thought, but it's, it's where I want to land this morning. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Well, let's pray. Ask the Lord for help. Father, we need your word. We need what it says. We need to be fed by it. And God, I pray that, that you would open our eyes this morning to the truth in your word. I pray that you would feed our minds, our hearts, our souls, that as a result, you'd make us more like Christ. We want that work, Father, and uh, you choose to use mere men for the task of proclaiming it, and I pray that you would grant me strength to do so. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Let me continue reading the passage of Scripture. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything, you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Well, there's kind of a running uh, joke about some young men of this generation is that they're unable to make commitments, often under or unemployed, living in mom and dad's basement playing video games. Now, I know that's none of the young men here, but that is a kind of a tragic thing, really. It's not funny. That's tragic both for the individual, but also for society at large. While taking responsibility for one's life is not something that is the domain of, of Christians only, certainly, Christian maturity does provide the foundation and the training, not only for young men, but for men and women of every age, to be responsible people. 
Now that said, my aim this morning is not to put the focus on, on being a good citizen and, and personal responsibility so much as it's on being and pursuing spiritual maturity, which is something that every follower of Christ should be concerned about. What is it to think in a mature way? Now being December 31st, it's, it's the end of the year, of course, but it's a day like any other, really. But there's something about this day where, where so many in the world feel this anticipation of something new, something, we're on the precipice of something. And I think it's a good opportunity for us as Christ followers to take stock of our lives and to take to heart the apostles' exhortation that we saw here in the passage and so think in a mature way. That's my aim this morning. Now, like I said, at the beginning of the new year, we're going to look at those visible marks of discipleship that we talk about here. Uh, but today, I just want, simply want to draw our attention to what is the foundation. What is the foundation of being a disciple? And, and if, if we're going to be growing disciples of Jesus, what does that look like? And what's, what's that anchored in? Well, looking at our text, the Apostle Paul here is writing about his own experience. And what he does is he exhorts the believers in Jesus with two words, and this is really my simple outline this morning. Two words that will be our specific application. Two words being forgetting and then straining. Forgetting and straining. That's the outline for this morning. Now, explaining what he means, he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. So we want to think maturely and we're going to think about what we're forgetting and we're going to think about what we're straining towards. The word mature in our Bible text, some words, use, some translations of the Bible use the word perfect. And that simply means something that is to be brought to its intended objective. So there's an intent for our lives, which is this idea of perfection. And we're not talking about sinlessness in this life, though that's what will be in the next, but a trajectory towards that maturity. That is what is in mind here, what is in view. And to be mature, to be perfect, to be completed, we need to be thinking about what we're forgetting about and we need to be thinking about what we're straining towards. It's not good for a young man to live indefinitely in his parents' basement, likewise. Likewise, it is not good for any disciple of Jesus to remain a spiritual infant. So, let's take what Paul's exhortation is to heart. First of all, forgetting forgetting. Now it's not, not a good thing if I tell Kathy that I'll pick up milk on the way home from work, but don't do it. That's not good. Or if I say I'll take care of the dirty dishes and don't, it is not a good thing. Not a good thing if I forget our anniversary or her birthday. Not. Forgetting to fulfill an important responsibility or an occasion to show love, that's not good. But our Bible passage here describes a kind of forgetting that is good. And we want to focus on that. What is a good kind of forgetting? And this kind of forgetting isn't a memory wipe. What it is is an intentional neglect. I'm not going to do that. It's an intentional neglect. And this is the kind of intentional neglect, this kind of forgetting that is going to be essential to mature in faith. Well, as we look at the passage, what is the Apostle Paul saying that he needs to forget? Well, it's that which used to define or control his life. Uh, in verse 5, before the section we read, he talks about his Jewish heritage. He talks about his uh, educational 
pedigree as a Pharisee. He talks about the fact that he was, used to think he was so righteous that, that persecuting the church was the outcome of that. That's verse six. In short, Paul, or he was known as Saul then, he was an upright, respectable religious leader. He was esteemed. He was brilliant. We see that. We see that post-conversion in Romans. But certainly that brilliance would not have been absent uh, prior to his conversion. So he was well-known. He was respected. He was trained in one of the best pharisaical schools under Gamaliel. But now what he's saying is he's viewing this, this past, through the lens of what it means to be in Christ. He, he talks about that time as a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. A righteousness of my own that comes from the law. So what does Paul think about that? Well, he says, I, I count everything as loss. Loss, damaged, once valued, but now seen as worthless. You know, like when you get a, a new car, but then someone T-bones you at the, at the intersection, and the insurance writes it off. Once it was worth a great deal to you, maybe you washed the car regularly, but then somebody wrecked the car, and, and you can't use it anymore. You're not going to drag that thing to the car wash and vacuum out the interior. You don't care. It's worthless. But, but in Paul's case, the worth of his former life, his, his own self-righteousness, basically we come to understand that for him it was a delusion. It really never had any true value before God. And if that's not enough, to, to capture what he thinks about his former life, he adds, and count them as rubbish. Rubbish, what, what, that's like paper and cans in the recycle bin? No, it's worse. Is that like the trash that the, the truck picks up at my house on Thursday? No, it, it's worse than that. The word rubbish, scubalon. The translation doesn't really capture it very well. There are several things, several words in the English language that do. Manure, dung, doo-doo, excrement, right? And several words that are not fit for polite conversation. We know what he's talking about here. The point is that Paul is saying that, that this is something, his former life, and, and, and I, I bring that up because he's saying it's detestable. It's disgusting. It's offensive. It's to be removed from both sight and smell. The reasons why we have septic systems, sewer systems, right? Shawshank Redemption, Andy Dufresne, he crawled 500 yards through it gagging his way to freedom, but he didn't say, oh, I'm going to stay here. We get it, right? You leave it behind, you get out. That's what Paul thinks of his old way of thinking. Righteousness that came from keeping the law. Now, now what, is, what is that? Well, the essence of what Paul did, what Paul believed, the way Paul behaved as Saul, as this Pharisee of Pharisees, as this Hebrew of Hebrews, as this Benjamite, as this religious leader, he kept the Sabbath. That's what the law said. He kept the kosher food laws. He gave alms to the poor. He wore the phylactery, which is a little leather box on his arm and contained a, a piece of the scroll of the law. He did that. Those are the things he did in the positive and the things he didn't do. Well, he didn't take the Lord's name in vain. He didn't bear false witness. He didn't steal or commit adultery. Now in Paul's mind, by doing certain things and, and not doing other things, in his mind, the old Paul, 
what he was doing was commending himself to God, thinking that God was looking down at him saying, oh, what a wonderful child of mine. He has earned my favor. That was Paul's thinking. Well done, Paul. You're a shining example. Paul's going, yes, I am. Right? But this is offensive. Paul says, account loss. It's dumb. So why is it so offensive? Because it's offensive to God. In the previous chapter of Philippians, Paul writes about the Son of God, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held onto. The Son of God emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Well, why? Why do that? Why would the Son of God do that? On display before man, but more importantly, on display before God the Father, he became a curse for us. That is to say, in our place. Just as it is written, this is Galatians 3.13, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He became the curse for us and in our place. And it was necessary. And in fact, it was the only possible way uh, for man's guilt to be covered. The only possible way. And as costly, as infinitely costly as this was, God did not do this grudgingly. Sending his son into the world, as, as the prophet Isaiah writes, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. It is offensive to God. Self-righteousness is abhorrent to God. And in light of the sacrifice of Christ, think, think with me in this absurd, absurd scenario. A young man, he's, he's gonna propose marriage to a young woman. Scrimps, he saves, he, he works extra shifts, he, he sells off some other valuables, all to buy this ring so that he can make this pledge of a lifelong commitment to this young woman that he loves. So then the day arrives, and at just the right time, he, he gets down on one knee and he presents the ring. He doesn't, he doesn't need to say a word, she knows what it means. Now seeing that ring, her, her eyes light up, tears of joy. But before saying anything at all to him, she reaches for a purse and pulls out a $5 bill and says, here, let me contribute. <laughs> now, you, you should feel the, the, the absurdity of that, right? No one would do that. No one would do that. I hope no one would do that. But think about it. If he accepted the five bucks from her, you know what he'd be doing? He'd be telling her what the ring is worth and what his pledge is worth. It's worth five bucks, and for her part, if he received that, the ring would no longer be a true gift because she essentially paid for it. So now think of the immeasurable act, the sacrificial act of God. With love, in love, he sent his son to take your sin. The father presents to you this greatest, most valuable gift and you say, yeah, 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 let, let me contribute. Let, let me let me pay for that. 
as if your paltry little list of good deeds can in any way be compared to the sacrifice of the Son of God. That's why it's rubbish. It's ugly. It's offensive. Self-righteousness is offensive to God because it is rooted in that sin of pride. And any sinful act cannot in any sense be the means of anyone's salvation. Now, self-righteousness was not only Paul's, not on, Paul's only sin. His, he had murderous hatred towards Christians before Christ rescued him. He didn't have a problem with supporting the mob that stoned Stephen to death. He watched their cloaks for them. Now, how could Paul, how could Paul forget what was behind him? How could he do that? And how can we do that? It means continually putting no confidence in our abilities before God, but rather simply resting, resting in the grace of God. We do not commend ourselves to God with anything. We come before God empty-handed. We come before God in and of ourselves filthy. And we need something supernatural. There's nothing we can grab from our closet. There's nothing we can pull out of our tool bag. There isn't anything we can do. We're empty and naked before God. And that's where we need to be. Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, very familiar, by grace you've been saved. By grace. That's gift. You've been saved by a gift of God. And this is not your own doing. The verse goes on, not as all to works, so no one can boast. The idea of coming into the presence of God and, and giving him the list of our good deeds Here's my son, crucified. Yeah, but I gave some money to the church. I helped my neighbor. Not that those things are bad to do, but they're not the means by which God commends us. Nothing in us. So let me ask you, are you resting in God's grace? Are you resting in that? For yourself, but also as you think of other believers. See, the self-righteous trap, that's a really insidious one. Now, it's a given that God wants us to be free from sin, and we'll get to how that works in the, in the next section, but here's how we fall into this trap of self-righteousness, even as believers in Jesus. And, and I'll say this, for some of you who, who are raised in a Roman Catholic environment, I'm not trashing the church, but this is a corruption <laughs> brought in, and it's in one word, Penance. Penance. They teach, along with confession of sin, that penance is this performance of meritorious acts that somehow God accepts as payment for temporal punishments due to sin. So a Roman Catholic will, will recite certain prayers, rosary, do charitable acts, believing, believing that in this that God grants forgiveness on that basis. And what that does is empties the cross of both its significance and its power. Now, listen, even if you've never been in the Roman Catholic Church, I know some of you grew up in there, 
I still believe that Satan tempts us with this idea all the time. It's so very subtle. Maybe there's a habitual sin you've fallen into and you resolve. I'll just go to church more. I'll serve sacrificially. I'll give more. Not in order to, to gain some spiritual strength, but as if you're doing something for God. Like a, an exchange of services. I, I did this thing, Lord, but hey, I can make up for it. Now, it's not wrong to serve sacrificially. It's not wrong to give. No, I'm not saying that. But if they're the means by which, having trusted in Christ, we come back to God so that we can get our forgiveness again, that's penance. And it is loathsome to God. We bring our junk. We say, hey, this is pretty cool, God. He says, uh, my son, Now, motive makes all the difference, of course, in these things. And, and if you're self-righteous, what that does is it bleeds into how you think about other professing Christians, too. There are modern Pharisees that impose extra-biblical rules. They do this on themselves as a measure of spirituality, but then seek to impose those things as a standard on others. And I'm saying extra-biblical. Let me il illustrate in the extreme. How can he or she be a Christian? They have a TV. How can she or be a, he or she be a Christian? I, I can't believe they send their children to public school. Oh, I saw him sipping wine. Surely he's headed for hell. Dancing to the devil's music, and that's anything not hymns or the Gaithers. <laughs> what backsliders, right? Oh, he doesn't get up at 5 a.m. to read his Bible and pray? Hmm, I'm not so sure he's a believer. Now, I'm, again, it, I'm illustrating in the extreme. Some of these things I remember from my childhood. So. And I don't believe anybody thinks these things today, but you can all think of ways in which you may be holding someone or yourself to an unbiblical standard as a measure of how spiritual you are before God. That's odious to God. The only merit we have is the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, it matters that we move away from our sin. We'll get to that in a moment. But if we just think about it, the one who is self-righteous either feels too confident in his abilities, right? But maybe for the one who is caught in this way of thinking, if they don't feel confident in their abilities, they actually feel completely defeated. So, well, I can't. I can't do that. May as well give up. Maybe... Maybe this following Jesus is not for me. To be mature, you've got to forget all of that. Neglect that way of thinking. Consider it a loss, the scubalon, the manure that it is. So forgetting. And second, be straining. Be straining. Now when I run, uh, the only thing I'm competing with is my desire not to, <laughs> to rest, to just take it easy. But you know what this is like, right? In a race, you gotta keep your focus on the tape. If you, if you try to look behind, you could very well get tripped up. And to win, you actually need to try. You have to make an effort. You've gotta be purposeful, not passive. It's, it's about going in the right direction and avoiding distractions. And you need endurance. 
And so it is for disciples of Jesus. The same is true. The Apostle Paul writes in verse 14 that he is okay, forgetting. Now what is he doing? He's straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Straining. You can see the runner, the veins bulging in the neck. Straining, pushing, pressing. Now, at this point, you might see a potential contradiction. And if you haven't seen it, I'll, um, this has been a struggle for Christians since the beginning of time. If salvation is in Christ is all of God, it's all of his grace and not works, then how can Paul use the word strain implying effort? And the kind of straining has to do with the object of the effort, right? Paul's former life, his efforts were focused on proving how righteous he was. Now his efforts, his straining is towards gaining Christ. And we see how he says he gains Christ. He describes it in verse 8. He talks about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. The worth of knowing. And as much as imitation is important, he doesn't say the surpassing worth of my being able to imitate Christ Jesus. He says knowing. And this is not merely an intellectual knowledge. He says in verse 9, to gain Christ, to know him is to be found in him. And what that means is that it, it, it means you're spiritually linked, spiritually united with Christ. Paul says in, in a, uh, Colossians 3, which I love, he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. And then he continues, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God, describing what, what, what's that unity? How are we joined to Christ? Your life is hidden with Christ and God. Elsewhere in the scripture, Paul, the apostle, describes this in Christ existence as new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.21. That's something done for you by the grace of God and in you by the Holy Spirit. So if you are in Christ... And this is forever, never to be taken away, never to be undone. If you are in Christ, when God sees you, again, and this is for those who've put their faith in Christ. You, you know who he is as the son of God. You know he bore your sin at the cross. You know he rose again. You're trusting in that. That's what it means to be raised with Christ. So now, you are in Christ because you believe that. When God sees you, this is forever. He forever sees you as hidden in, enveloped in the life of his son. So that the love that the father has for the son, he likewise has for you. In fact, Jesus said, as the father has loved me, so I have loved you. The love of God the father, the love of God the son for the father, the love of son for us is all of the love that he has for the father. It's, it's all of the same part. And knowing that Christ Jesus is in you, verse 9, then he says, you have a righteousness which comes through faith. So this is the contrast, right? It's not the self-righteousness. It's not the righteous things that I do, but it's a righteousness that simply is given to you. You believe, 
you're righteous. That's what, what was said about Abraham, right? God made these promises to him and he, he listened. And the scripture says in Genesis 15, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He simply given it. You trust me? You're righteous in my sight. So having believed in Jesus, trusting again in his vicarious death on the cross, trusting that that was for the forgiveness of your sins, believing that when he said, hanging on the cross, it is finished, he declared you free from condemnation, believing that, you are legally counted righteous in God's sight. There is no work to do. You simply rest in this truth. So then how is this striving it's keeping your focus on Christ because the reality is we're always, always, always tempted with distractions, right? And we've got to resist those distractions. So to resist them, again, in Colossians 3, Paul says, since you have been raised with Christ, what do you do? Set your minds on things that are above where Christ is. It's your focus. It's what you're thinking about. It's what you're dwelling on. Set your mind on Christ. You do that because you've already been made spiritually alive. And what we're doing is when we set our minds on Christ, we're, we're putting the focus on the very reason for our life. Christ. Now the other aspect of knowing Christ is knowing is experiencing the power of his resurrection. This is verse 10. And I love this. See, the wonderful thing about God's grace is it isn't passive doesn't save us and then just leave us on our own, right? It's not passive. It accomplishes, God's grace in our lives accomplishes the very thing that he declares about us. If God declares you righteous, then God's grace continues to work in you to make you, in practice, more righteous. So stated another way, by God's grace, God declares you righteous in Christ. And that grace is also the power in you to learn what it means to be righteous. The, uh, Jim prayed this in his prayer this morning. Titus 2, 11 and 12. Listen, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's all who trust him. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. Grace. Salvation is given, right? And then what it does, verse 12, training us. So this grace does something. It training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The grace of God doesn't leave you alone. It trains you. Training you changes your affections. Those old things that used to satisfy you, they're no longer desirable. The sin that you used to revel in it becomes increasingly loathsome to you. It should over time. And, and some of us will battle with some of these things for the entirety of our lives, but we're always in this moment, we're going, I know I'm supposed to hate that, and I hate that my flesh craves it, but God, make me hate it. And so we're always in the battle, right? So we're not completed. But you're not passively saying, well, whatever, let me just live in it. This is how Christians endure. This is how we keep our focus on Christ. This is how we live the kinds of lives that God wants us to live. 
The power of Jesus' resurrection is the supernatural energy that empowers holiness, that empowers a life set apart that ultimately gives glory to God. And that, that, that energy, it's not mere ability. That energy is a person. It's the Holy Spirit who makes his dwelling in everyone who has true faith in Christ. Take you another, I know I'm using a lot of scripture here, but take you another passage. This, this elucidates this. Romans 8, 11, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, okay, here's the logic. If that spirit that raised the Son of God from the grave, if God's spirit dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. These bodies that are dying, he'll give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. You have life in you because of Christ. And so, one more thing. Through faith, through faith in Christ, you can truly know him. You have the power to endure. And, and this one thing, one more thing. You share in his sufferings, becoming like him, like Christ in his death. All right, well, that one doesn't, that one doesn't seem that attractive, does it? Sharing Christ's sufferings, becoming like him in his death. But let's talk about what that is. See, we know this, believers in Jesus, if you've been a Christian for a while, you know that when you turn to Christ in faith, that oftentimes means living in opposition to the priorities of the world around you. You're going against the grain. You're swimming upstream. It's taking, as Jesus described, a narrow road while everybody else is on the wide and easy path. And Jesus told his disciples, he warned them, he said, in this world you will have tribulation. He also said this, he said, if the world hates you, know, know that it hated me before it hated you. See, mature thinking views the world around us rightly. Mature thinking understands that something in you has to die. That old man in you that said, I rule me, that's gotta be put to death every single day. There has to be daily submission to Christ. He must be the order of our life. Jesus said this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Deny self. Deny those natural inclinations. Deny things that are, that are, that are opposed to God. Deny the pull of the world. Deny fleshly cravings. Say, no. That's, that's the effort to, to strain to look to Christ, to, to set aside those distractions, say, no, that's gonna lead me down in a direction that is not good. Apostle Paul described this in Galatians 2.20. And this is, this is a very hopeful passage. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. He's not saying this is in the future. He said the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the straining. It's resting in 
and keeping our focus on Christ. It isn't commending ourselves to God with the things that we do, but it's doing things that are righteous as an outworking of looking to Christ. You see, there's a difference. If you bring these things, these good works to God and say, hey, accept me because of this, you're missing the point. But if as a result of looking to Christ, the outflow of your life is, is these good works, acts of charity, holiness, love, service. It's just simply the outworking of what the Spirit is already doing in your life. And that's glorious. But we never offer them to God and say, hey, accept me on this basis because we stand before God in Christ alone. And that's forever. So what lies ahead? Paul's straining, right? And so we likewise must strain. We must put our focus in Christ. What lies ahead? Verse 11, he talks about attaining the resurrection from the dead. Now, that's a pregnant phrase. So much is packed into there. But, but understand this. It's not merely life beyond this mortal existence. It's not merely life beyond this mortal existence. The resurrection from the dead is the fulfillment of Jesus' promise to his disciples, which extends to us. When he said, I'm preparing a place for you, and I'm going to go. That where I am, where I am, you may be also. The resurrection from the dead is the Christian hope. As we look to Christ now in these mortal bodies, we're looking beyond And so we can suffer all things. The sufferings of Christ, we'll have to participate in them. The hate of the world. Sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's hard, but but you're going to go against the grain. But you will endure that if you keep looking to Christ because you see what's beyond. You see what's beyond. That's eternal life with Christ. Well, mature thinking, it's purposeful. Mature thinking avoids distractions and keeps focused on the goal. So, my simple, final, wrap-up exhortation this morning is this from verse 14. Let us press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That is my longing And that's my prayer for each of you. Let's pray. Father, we want to be found in Christ. We we want to be those who um, are straining to rest in him. Father, each of us needs to forget things that are behind us, trusting that the merit of Jesus is all that we need before you. And Father, we know that um, your word assures us that when we stumble, when we fall, when we, when we just mess up royally, that it isn't final. None of us can claim to be sinless before you in this life. And so we have the promise that if we confess, you, Father, are faithful and just to forgive and cleanse. And you do that, God, because of your Son. Your justice has been satisfied. And we are now in your family by faith. So we thank you for that, Father. We ask that you would strengthen us, keep us faithful, keep us focusing on Christ, keep us straining to what lies ahead. And Father, that 
we may one day attain to the resurrection of the dead and be with Jesus forever. Keep us faithful to that day. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.